This is an ABC podcast. One billion dollars. Is that what it will take to deconstruct one of the most potent engines of misinformation in the history of media? Well, this week on Download This Show, the controversial US broadcast outfit InfoWars is about to find out. And what is the point of going to work in an office if you're just going to spend the whole day on video calls? All of that much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is another episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week from Access Informatics, Peter Marks. Welcome back to Download The Show. Hi, Mark. Good to be with you. And product manager with Flux Finance, Natasha Gillazo. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thanks, Mark. Do you know what I like about this conversation? I have at least one of you in front of me, which means I have avoided a video <laughs> call once again today. Interesting story this week, Natasha, that perhaps um, when you go to, if you happen to have a job in a workplace that, you know, often has office furniture, that maybe you shouldn't be doing video calls uh, from work. Explain to me the story a little bit. Yeah, so Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield, he's basically arguing that in a situation where workers are operating on some kind of hybrid model, which means they work both remotely and have a shared office space, to use the time in the office in a different way. So Slack is a messaging software that's come out of the US and a bit like Zoom has entered increasingly into a lot of different workforces. Um I don't think what Stuart is saying is like a particularly controversial viewpoint um, or anything, you know, too crazy. He's basically just drawing attention to a key industrial relations debate of our time. Like, how should work look? Um, How does it look? Is what we're doing making sense Um, in a sort of situation where I think people adapted during COVID and now it's like, cool, do those adaptations actually make sense um, for people's happiness, productivity? It's interesting, Peter, I've heard variations on this argument put forward that basically if you're going to have a day that's filled with calls and connections with people remotely, there's there's no point going to the office. What you should do with the office is actually do everything you can't do, which is have coffees with people. Again, this is one of those things that only really works for people that have like jobs in offices. But does the underlying principle of it make sense to you? Look, I think Stuart's being a bit self-serving here because <laughs> during the pandemic, we all got used to using, I guess, Zoom is the is the main example, but all, all sorts of video conferencing and people found actually that it worked pretty well once they got used to it. And I'll bet that has hit Slack's business. So Slack is a, is a collaboration tool. It's a bit like a shared messaging room system where you can have a topic and a group of people can collaborate from their desks. But what he's saying is that, you know, there are benefits in being in an office with other people. You have communication. You you probably get better fidelity than you do on a video. But look, for most of my career, I've been a software developer and we really hate meetings. And many of us, I think, are maybe on the spectrum and we aren't that comfortable in them. So it's been quite good. And and software developers have come up with lots of ways to work together. Um, For example, the agile methods where meetings are kept short by making everyone stand up (laughs) and work is done in short sprints. So, you know, software developers in particular are good at using collaboration tools like Slack, but I'll bet that Slack's usage has dropped off because people have got used to using video calls. But I think if you know the people, then the video can work really well. And of course, people forget about the cost of meetings when everyone has to be there at the same time, maybe some people have to travel. That is a huge, huge cost that we kind of 
forget about. So if we could get rid of some of that time, I think it would be a good thing. It kind of raises an interesting point, which is, yes, it does come from Slack, which is a sort of a productivity work organizing piece of software that I guess would compete with the likes of Microsoft Teams and all that kind of stuff. And it did occur to me, Natasha, why hasn't a group like Slack invested in their own video chat service? Because, I mean... They have. Um, they have. Uh, they, they have okay, a video right. chat service integrated ah, called Huddle and they right. have exactly, basically a very similar functionality to Zoom. Um, so I think Slack originally came as sort of like a competitor to email and now it's also like responding to that. I think in this context, like, you know, Slack, coming from the Slack boss, this is an interesting source because if you've used Slack, it's a very frictionless messaging service that I think like creates a lot of like you know fake work and meaningless kind of uh, you know filler time stuff busy work exactly is there an example i'm I'm kind of curious (laughs) please name and shame people you've worked with that have done this yeah i mean like (laughs) on the one hand it's sort of like um I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just there's always multiple threads and channels on the go. There's emoji reactions to individual messages. So I think it's like it's got more personality and like like every aspect of the Internet, Slack has its own kind of culture. I would call it quite a peppy platform overall. <laughs> um, but I think that, um, you know, I think that it's definitely guilty of allowing this kind of like fake work thing to creep in. If I just compare it to different workplaces that I've been in. Um, so it's interesting that the Slack boss himself is coming out sort of talking about, you know, how would we be more productive? And I'm like, well, you know, one really easy way would be if people used Slack less. Um, <laughs> but that's not the point he's making. He's still, no, he's still weirdly, allowed to talk about that. He's, he's, still, he's still, you know, allowed to have a view on, you know, how to use office time. But yeah, it is an interesting one from him. Uh, what is something that you would change about work culture at the moment, Peter? Like, you know, stepping outside of the, the particulars of this this case, are there things that you know, obviously after the last couple of years, lots of things have changed. Well, is there something now that was like, you know what, let's uh, let's change this for good? I, I think that what Butterfield is responding to is kind of an anxiety in management that if you can't see the staff sitting at their desks, you know, are they really working? And if, if the only way you measure whether people are being productive is to physically see them there, I've worked in offices where we had two offices, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney, and we had a permanent video feed between the two. So you could just sort of see the people at the other end. But actually, there's an interesting story the other day. Do you remember Equifax, the company that collects data on people, including their employment? They suffered a huge data breach in 2017. Well, they used their own software to identify members of their staff with second or third jobs and fired them. They recently fired 24 IT staff. So some of these people apparently were holding down three jobs. But I would blame poor supervision. I think that um, if you don't know what the staff are doing, then you're not managing them very well. And these sort of simplistic things of, yes, they're in the office, so therefore they're working, that's not the way we should measure what work is being done. As I said, coming back to software developers, I think software developers have got it really pretty down pat because we we have to write software that then we can demonstrate. And so if you do work that you have to demonstrate, it means that anxiety goes away. I have to say about Equifax too, they use their own software to really probe private things about staff. I mean, if they have second jobs, that's that's perhaps something that should not be revealed. So I really wonder about how good they are at their security and, and privacy practices. I mean, I must confess, I, I do... I'm guilty of the the anxiety about like the people that I'm working with. What are they working on at the moment? And and is stuff going to get delivered because you can't see it? Like I think 
I, I'm probably guilty of it. And I do wonder, like the, the example you said there, Peter, of like just having an open feed between the two officers is kind of fascinating. Natasha, are there, are there things that we can do now that I guess can kind of make the best of what we have now, this hybrid situation where lots of people who are, you know, in, in offices at the moment, some of them are, um, some of them are working a few days a week. Some uh, officers are insisting people come back full time. Is there things that we can do where we can adapt and make the best of the situation we have now where we do have technology that allows us to do a lot of stuff from home? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we can like welcome a lot of the aspects of what technology introduces. I think we need to understand like what are we trying to solve for? Like are we trying to solve for the privacy problem? Are we trying to solve for productivity? Are we trying to solve for like the need for human connection? Um I, for, I mean, I want human connection, but yeah. somebody somewhere with more money than me probably wants productivity. Well, well on the, sp- I get, okay. So on the productivity kind of like point, um, some research that I was looking into in terms of like what happens on video calls that can be counter to productivity is people tend to be more polite on video calls. They also tend to stare at themselves more um, <laughs> than the other person, which means that they're not doing as much active listening unless they hide, hide their self view from one another. Um, it also takes out the embodied aspect of communication. So gestures, your arms, you know, like your actual body. So it's more exhausting overall. So all these things are, you know, not anti-video calls, but they're just things that they can't achieve and can't do. So if you think, um, I guess when it comes to like coming into the office, like get people sitting in a circle, like get people being able to express, like draw out more conversation and also not being afraid of a bit of clash. Like, you know, I think, um, I think that's something that could be encouraged in an office context from a productivity point of view. Maybe you'll get to the point quicker if you're a bit less like, you know, hyper professional video call. Um, but it depends on the industry as well. Um, so I think when we talk about this thing, we sort of have this like mythical single worker who does like one thing and has one aim. But, you know, there's like the media industry, the finance industry, the hospitality industry, the arts industry. Um Alpha Beta did like a digital resilience report. They looked at the um, the effect of this forced digital adaptation and hybrid working. And, um, you know, I, I think some sectors do better with more video calls, more onlineness um, than others. So media and telco did well. Government and public admin did well. HOSPO and the arts and rec productivity and just vibes went down. <laughs> like Zoom comedy just isn't the same. Like it's not the same. No, it's so often quite bad. <laughs> yeah, the whole like office versus like how do we meet up, I think you kind of need to think also like, well, what are we actually, what are the people doing? What are they trying to do? What's the aim? There's a there's a lot of questions in that. Mm. All right, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, culture, and a firm stand on Zoom calls. Uh, Mark Fennell is my name and some interesting news this week out of Uber. What's happened with the former security chief at Uber? He's been convicted on Wednesday of federal charges stemming from payments he quietly authorised to hackers who had breached the ride-hailing company in 2016. Joe Sullivan was found guilty of obstructing justice for keeping the breach from the Federal Trade Commission, which was probing their privacy protections at the time, and of actively hiding a felony. What's interesting here is this is believed to be the first case of an executive facing criminal charges in relation to a data breach. Uber's chief executive, Dara Kozrowski, revealed in 2017 that hackers had gained access to the driver's licence numbers of 600,000 US Uber, Uber drivers, as well as the names, email addresses and phone numbers of up to 57 million Uber riders and drivers. It, it's good that they owned up, which is legally required, as it is here in many US states, 
What isn't good is that they waited a year before announcing the breach. Now, Joe Sullivan is alleged to have instructed his security team to keep the knowledge of the breach tightly controlled. Now, interestingly, Uber has a bug bounty scheme where someone who reports a vulnerability can be paid, and the hacker took advantage of this. So as well as taking all the data, they were also paid a $100,000 bu- uh, bounty for reporting the way they got in. Actually, the um, the vulnerability was very simple. This wasn't a complicated hack. They left a digital key exposed that allowed access to Uber's Amazon storage that held all their backup data. So it's a very simple hack in the scheme of things. Joe's crime was that he paid the bug bounty basically to cover up the hack because to get the bounty, the hacker had to sign a non-disclosure agreement and they just didn't observe that agreement. So uh, it's probably worth pointing out that it's very likely he will appeal this. Natasha, oh, yeah. what, what is the implications for Uber now? I mean, some of these events are a few years back. Is there is there an impact on Uber today? The reason I ask is Uber has a somewhat rambunctious beginning, let's say, uh, in terms of its, its, its origin story. And uh, a lot of what was done in its sort of ascendancy around the world are you know, in some cases put it in extra legal territory. Uh, they've obviously got this case. And the question I always come back to with cases like this is at the end of the day, when you're standing on a street corner with your phone out, do you care? Do you, like, is this the sort of thing, do you think, Natasha, that people are going to be like, no, I'm going to go get another app. Like, do you think people really care? I think people have been really worn down by the way that these ascendant tech companies, whether it's Airbnb or Facebook or Uber, have, I suppose, broken boundaries and broken laws to expand in the way that they have. And that includes sort of like the expansion of like what data that we think is like comfortable to collect, you know, that the shift in what people will just give out to have access to a service. Um, So I do think people are like a little worn down down by the kind of attrition of the tech industry over the last decade or so. So I don't, do people care? Um, I think people still care. I definitely know people who still feel, you know, really uncomfortable knowing that data is leaked or data is breached. But I think it's one of those things where people also have that sense of uh, kind of powerlessness in a sense. So I guess this case is attempting to rehabilitate that sense of like learned hopelessness around where we can't do anything about how they act and at least sort of, you know, attempt to prosecute someone and be like, this is, you know, this was the law around how you're meant to use data. You broke it. Um, Let's use the courts. Um, I don't know how that affects the person on the street corner. Learned hopelessness might well be my favourite new depressing phase. By the way, Natasha, thank you for that. Uh, Peter, you know, there, the difference between, um, you know, when some of these events are happening and now is that Uber now has a flotilla of competitors in a lot of different parts around the world. Do you think at the end of the day, though, now that they are our alternatives, you're not just choosing between Uber and a taxi, do you think people do do go, do you know what, I'm going to go sign up with insert competitor here? Or at the end of the day, is it just ubiquitous and convenient and people stick with it? I think people are worried about it. If, if your data is stolen, for example, the Optus, the recent um, Optus data breach, that means that scammers have got your phone number, your address, your name, you know, other information about you. And I don't know about you, but I get message, you know, phone calls from people saying, and they seem to know a lot about me when they ring up. They go, oh, hello, is this Peter? And I go, yes. And I'm trying to work out if it's a scam or not. So it is. there is a cost to our data being taken, particularly if it's all the identifying information that they want, you know, your passport and your driver's license and things. That can be used for identity theft. That's a real cost. So 
if you can trust one company more than another, another, then I think that is a way that we choose companies. But almost everyone has leaked data now. I mean, it's just extraordinary the number of leaks that there have been. Um, Uber is trying to move on. I've got a, a great quote uh, from their newsroom. Uh, they say, quote, there's been no shortage of reporting of Uber's mistakes prior to 2017. Thousands of stories have been published. Multiple books have been written. There's even been a TV series. But the thrust of what they're saying is they're saying, look, don't judge us on the past. We've moved on. Uh, judge us on the last five years and future behaviour. I mean, I'm in two minds about prosecuting executives, which is what's striking about this case. On the one hand, it will presumably motivate other executives to take security seriously and to report it. On the other hand, it might scare them if so. There, if there is a breach, they'll keep it secret rather than owning up and risking being prosecuted. Mm. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And $965 million worth of damages is an astonishingly large amount of money, but that is what is facing Alex Jones, uh, he of the uh, the famed InfoWars site, like, just explain to me how this case came about, Natasha, because it's kind of a horrific and a bit wild. Yeah, I think um, to dial back, so Alex Jones is a right-wing conspiracy theorist and um, his the branding of his media show or media kind of online media empire is very like spooky, weird, what the mainstream media, what the government don't want you to know kind of affair. Um, InfoWars makes about $50 million a year. Um, so this case, the court case that we're talking about comes out of one of his issues, I suppose, um, is the Sandy Hook massacre, which was a school shooting where 26 people died in 2012. So the key conspiracy being promoted was that the massacre was orchestrated by the US government to promote stricter gun laws, which is not true. So the case with this like extraordinary damages amount, which I guess is like what's taking, um, you know, up the oxygen or the headline space because it is just like an astronomical amount and it's a bit kind of like how did they how did a court get there? That seems really bizarre. But essentially it's meant to be, um, you know, compensation to the victims of the actual Sandy Hook massacre for, you know, Alex Jones propagating these lies and not conforming to certain standards around factual reporting. But that's not what this, that's not what InfoWars is about. That's not InfoWars games. Um, it's, you know, a fringe media business that is all about conspiracy theories. So yeah, I think in some senses, this is a court trying to make InfoWars subject to the same standards that other media outlets like a Fox or a CNN in America would be, you know, are subject to. Um, yeah. Can you really call a business fringe if they make $50 million? Yeah, so that's that's the thing, right? It's like the positioning of them being like I I don't think it is fringe. If you're you're not the little guy anymore, if you have that kind of like that kind of audience and financial power, you're a legitimate media business at that point. And um, yeah, I think when I was doing some research into this, um, I mean, Mark, like you would know that like with there's training with journalists and there's standards, and I think that's really important. It's not. It's really really important. I was say training, yeah, standards, yeah. But um, yeah, I think there's. I, I was doing some research into this and there's a guy called Joe Navarro who has this book called Dangerous Personalities and he talks about a subset being like the paranoid narcissist and these people are like angry, suspicious, tense, everyone's out to stiff them, um, whether it's the government, whether it's this, um, and they're really apt to launch diatribes about this, that or the other. I feel like Alex Jones fits this personality type and his media content also like feeds this tendency in viewers, right? So there's a lot of paranoia um, and a lot of... Um, 
US government this, da da da. That's kind of the theme. Um, and I do think there should be consequences for that. Um, yeah. Peter, is he actually ever going to end up paying this amount or is there going to be some way he get, potentially gets out of it? Well, Jones claims that he can't pay almost a billion dollars, which is probably true, but his claim of having almost no money is clearly not true. It's been estimated that he's worth uh, $270 million and that at least could be seized and perhaps the asset of the business could be sold up. He claims to be worth only $2 million and his company, ironically called Free Speech Systems, filed for bankruptcy earlier this year. So, yeah, he's laughed at the amounts that are being awarded. He, he also calls the trial all made up, which is weird given that he was there for at least parts of it. Uh, InfoWars site actually has a poll saying, do you believe the $1 billion verdict against Alec Jones will set the precedent to su- successfully destroy free speech? I noticed, interestingly, that the majority of voters say yes. So free speech advocates are arguing that the ruling shows how dangerous defamation laws are. They're, you know, it's part of cancel culture as they see it. But I think that these conspiracy theories really are dangerous because people fall down the, the trap. I mean, I, I know two people, intelligent people, who honestly believe that COVID vaccination is a giant conspiracy to poison people, which is completely obvious nonsense given that most of the world has been vaccinated. When I send them articles from trusted sources, I did the other day, I sent someone an article from The Lancet talking about how many lives had been saved. They shrug it off saying, oh, they're just in on the conspiracy. I I just think that some people find the world a very complicated and confusing place and a giant conspiracy theory, like the things that Jones makes up, just seem to make life a bit simpler for them. But the real evil, though, is social media, which promotes things that you pay attention to. So once you go down one of these rabbit holes of a conspiracy theory, YouTube shows more videos to a person, Facebook shows more posts, and they start to have that effect of, I'm reading this everywhere, most people think this is true. And really what Jones claims, that these children weren't murdered, that they were, he called them crisis actors, actors who were pretending to be injured, it's just totally evil. Can you imagine having your child killed and then having people say, they weren't killed, they were just an actor and they should be dug up. I mean, I think the damages are fair. I know he won't be able to pay, but I think it's a good thing. Is there a risk with a case like this that it allows Alex Jones to become something of a martyr to those that follow him, Natasha, so that in effect, like any knock-on effect of change of people's opinions and the way they see the world is sort of neutralised because he gets to turn it into this this sort of martyrdom. Yeah, I think for the people, look, it's hard to know what his viewers would think and feel. And I think there's always going to be like a spectrum of viewers, right? There's going to be people who find it intrinsically amusing and there would have been people who see him as like a guru, like cult-like figure who has their best interests out and that's what he's... You know, um, and I think for those, it, I think it really depends how deep they are. Um, do they have other voices of reason in their life? Um, the whole the truth is out there, if you go digging far enough, is a very appealing concept to a lot of people. And I think, you know, I, I don't want to scapegoat social media or anything in particular around this because I think there is a context that this is happening where people are more isolated, they're online more and feeling disaffected in some kind of way, which is like a maelstrom for, you know, becoming the kind of viewer who's going to engage in this kind of content um, in that kind of way. So I actually just find it more sad than anything Um, in terms of him being hailed as a martyr. Yeah, well, if he's got control of his own media empire and no accountability, then you can 
frame yourself online however you, you like. You know, there's, ha, ha, I'm sure that opportunity is there for the taking. What do you think, um, Peter? Do you think the there's a likelihood that this turns him into a martyr for those that follow him, and it and it doesn't necessarily change as many minds as, as a decision like this potentially? Oh, and could he's have. using it. He's using it to raise money. He's saying, you've got to help me to uh, fight this. And uh, But, look, there's more action to come. Uh, there's a defamation case later this year about the Rolls-Jones and other InfoWars employees played in the January 6th attack on the US Capitol. So, you know, this is not the last we're going to hear of him, although he probably won't have any resources to be taken anymore. But, look, it's in the name, InfoWars. He's having a war on information. These folks, they, they just want to make money. They don't care about the truth and the damage they do. This is just a game to get eyeballs, to get readers, to, to sell advertising. It, it's purely without any... Peter, any... that's a really similar rhetoric that, rhetoric that a lot of these fringe outlets use to critique the you know what I mean yeah. like that's often no, like a no, similar I, rhetoric that is engaged in that there's like no one is committed to the truth but they are you know well, I'm just I'm just pointing that out as like no, an yeah, idea yeah, I, I, I agree and I think what we've lost is trusted sources that that when all the money the rivers of gold of advertising that used to support newspapers that were trusted news outlets that were trusted that all disappeared we've now got people who are just trying to get eyeballs and they just want to make money and, you know, they'll, they'll put up whatever it is that they can see with their fantastic analytics makes people read it. And uh, we've lost something really important. We need to have trusted sources where you can go back and know that this is this is probably something that's well-researched. Everyone makes mistakes, but, we, we you know, it's very difficult for people to tell what's a real source and what's a not a real source anymore. What do you think, Mark, about the Alex Jones story? I think... I think there was no other way for it to go, to be honest. Like I, I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that there are consequences for putting things out in the world. I think his mechanism to, to kind of um, cement this sense of injustice among him and his followers is, is so effective that the, the following will be unavoidable. And I think what I, you know, I'm glad you brought up the January 6th stuff. I think there's an interesting strategy that seems to be at play and it's not new, but it is becoming very effective, which is like, if in doubt, attack the proceeding. So, you know, the the way in which the the act of actually investigating January 6th or the, you know, the act of, of bringing this case to the uh, to the courts, that itself is impugned as being, you know, this is a, this is a witch hunt. You know, and again, this is not a new thing, but I think it's reached a, a level of effectiveness because of the sort of reality distortion field that we now get with like information sort of, you know, ghettos. I think that that aspect of it feels new to me and it doesn't, and I don't, I think the thing, I'm, I don't think I'm saying anything particularly new or groundbreaking here. I think the question is in my mind is I, I don't know what unpicks it. I mean, beyond, because some of this is, you know, some of this is technological, is technology aided and abetted. I don't think it's technology driven. I think technology becomes popular because it speaks to something in our psychology and we go back to use it, right? So, you know, you can't separate a technology problem from a human problem. And I think this is a this is a human problem that has been aided and abetted by technology, right? Which is so which is the literal bread and butter of this program, right? It's not really about technology, it's about how technology is changing us. And I think, you know, you could argue that the Alex Jones case is something that happens a million miles away and is, you know, doesn't connect us in Australia, but I think it is a lightning rod and it illuminates 
a pattern of behavior. It illuminates something that we're all part of if we happen to live online and we happen to do things online. And what we do next with that, I think can only, I think technology can only do so much. I think it's, a, I think it's a psychology thing. All right. We are out of time. Huge thank you to our guests this week, Natasha Gillazo. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Peter Marks. Thank you as always. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Natasha. Thanks, Peter. And with that, I shall leave you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.